Well, it's very good to be here to be able to share the Word of God for just a few moments tonight. So if you have your Bible, please have it open at the passage that uh, Pete read to us from Luke chapter 5. Luke 5, 1 to 11. I want to call this message from now on, from now on. So if you remember nothing else, <clears throat> then you have three words to remember. From now on. Maybe some of you saw the television on Friday of uh, Cyril Ramaphosa, um, sworn in as the president of South Africa. And in his inauguration address, he said these words, from now on, we will build a new South Africa, free from corruption and free from theft. I guess all of us have known a from now on experience. For some of you, it was marriage. From now on, not single, married. For others, it was having children. From now on, you are going to have sleepless nights. And you are going to have an expensive uh, line of things that were endless as far as uh, money was concerned. For others, it may be that visit to the doctor. From now on, you're going to have to take one of these little pills every day. Or maybe two. From now on. Maybe going away to university was your from now on experience. From now on, not with mum and dad. From now on, having to live on your own and make those decisions which others have made for you. Or moving house. That's a from now on experience. From now on, you don't drive the car that way, but you go that way. I remember when we moved house uh, some time ago, on a number of occasions, I went home to the wrong house. I was so used to driving to Druidsville Road. I went up Druidsville Road <clears throat> and not to Booker Avenue. So we have all these different from now on experiences. And Luke 5, 1 to 11, I don't know if you noticed in the reading, it says in verse 10, those three words, from now on. So this passage is going to speak to all of us. We're going to look at it in three scenes. So we're going to break the passage down to three specific scenes that are in this passage. I'm, I'm not sure what your favourite television, if you watch television is. I tend to watch news and sports. But if it's something like Downton Abbey or Call a Midwife or NCIS, I don't know what your favourite television programme might be. Programmes are done in scenes, aren't they? So you have these different scenes. A scene might be in a particular room and then it's a scene outside. It's a scene in a different location. So we tonight have three different scenes. Scene one. We're going to call scene one teaching. And we see this in verse one to three. I want us to note that in the early part of Christ's ministry, the focus of his teaching was in the synagogue. So if you just glance back to chapter four, verse 16, it says Jesus came to Nazareth where he'd been brought up. As his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day. 
And as he went into the synagogue on this particular occasion, he took the book of the prophet Isaiah and he opened that book. And when he closed the book in verse 20, gave it back to the attendant, everybody's eyes were fixed on the Lord Jesus Christ because he said these words, today scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. So here is the Lord Jesus Christ in the synagogue. And in fact, the last verse of chapter 4 says he was preaching in the synagogues of Galilee. But then you break into verse 1 of chapter 5. Where is Jesus now teaching the word of God? He's outside where we're told the multitude press about to hear the word of God. So the synagogue, Jesus teaches. Here, by the lakeside, Jesus teaches. Later in the same chapter, if you just scan down to verse 17, it says, now it happened on a certain day as he was teaching. Now, where is he teaching in verse 17? He's actually teaching in the house where eventually the roof is going to open and a man is going to be let down in the midst by four friends, a man who is paralyzed. So in the space of just a few verses, we see the Lord Jesus Christ teaching the word of God in the synagogue, then outside and then in the house. A reminder to us as we scan time to our present day that the word of God is powerful and is for teaching within the confines of the church as we are tonight. Outside, UBM, beach missions, camps, open airs, in the home, the word of God needs to be taught. But we're told here is Jesus in verse 1, as the multitude press upon him to hear the word of God. And we have to capture this scene of this great crowd pressing in to the Lord Jesus Christ to hear the word of God. They press in because he speaks to them with authority. I don't know if you like crowds. I have a not a phobia, but I dislike going to London on the underground in rush hour. Don't know if you experience that. I have to go on Wednesday carrying a case, and it's one of those things that I really do not look forward to in rush hour carrying a case on the underground in London. Because as you know, as the train comes in, the doors open, and this great crowd just push, and you just get pushed onto the train. And uh, then when the train stops, you get pushed back out again. So... That's the crowd. Maybe for some of you, the January sales. Do you like the January sales? The crowds of the January sales when, you know, what you see, the, the, the doors open and people rush in? Well, I don't know what picture you have here. But it's very graphic. The multitude press upon him. And as they press upon him to hear the word of God, he is standing by the lake. He speaks with authority. I remember a number of years ago having the privilege of listening to Nelson Mandela. Looking back in my life, he was the most authoritative man 
outside of the gospel ministry that I have ever heard. He captivated every single person in the audience as he spoke about his time in jail, as he spoke about his vision for the country of South Africa. He spoke with authority. But never man spake like the Lord Jesus Christ as far as authority was concerned. And the people are pressing to hear him standing by the lake. Now it's called Lake Gennesaret. It's the same as the Lake of Galilee. Sometimes it's called the Sea of Galilee. Sometimes it's called the Sea of Tiberias or the Lake of Tiberias. It's always one and the same. The different gospel writers have slightly different ways of describing the Sea or the Lake of Galilee. And it's called the Lake of Gennesaret because that was one region. It's a fertile crest near um, Capernaum and the region was Gennesaret. And so it's called the Lake of Gennesaret. So have you got the picture? You've got the picture of the crowd pressing upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Where is he going to go to be able to speak clearly to this great crowd as they move him towards the lake? Well, there's a boat. And in that boat, the Lord Jesus Christ enters. Verse 3. He got into one of the boats, which was Simon's, and asked to be put out a little from the land. And here we have a floating pulpit. I don't know what sort of pulpits you've ever seen in different churches and different locations. This is a floating pulpit. And the Lord sitting in the boat, addressing the crowd, his voice echoing, as it were, going off the, the sea, the lake, to the people on the shore. Now I want to just bring two lessons from this opening scene. Lesson number one. The importance of teaching the word of God. It's very simple, isn't it? But we live in an age of dumbing down within the church at large and often within the evangelical church of the preaching and teaching of the Bible. And yet we're constantly reminded throughout Scripture that our task is to teach the Word of God in different locations, in church, in the open air, in the home, to teach the Bible. Of course, if you know the, the Scriptures, you'll know that the very final words of the Apostle Paul to Timothy... Here he is in the maritime prison in Rome. Any day he knows that he is going to lose his life. He tells us that in chapter 4. But what is the very final thing Paul wants to say to his, his young lieutenant, Timothy? He wants to say to him, Timothy, preach the word. Make known the word of God. I know some of you like football. If you know anything about football, you know that sometimes you can hear a little phrase called give and go. It means give the ball, then go, run and receive the ball again. Give and go. I don't want us to think about football, but I do want us to think in the same vein 
about preach and pass. We have to preach the word of God and pass on the word of God. That was Paul's message to Timothy. That is what our mandate is as churches to preach and to pass. Preach it, pass it. Preach it, pass it. And that's exactly what we're finding here as we just look together at these verses. The importance of teaching the word of God. But the other lesson I want us to see is the impact of the teaching. Isn't it interesting that when you just look at these verses and you go from verse 3 to verse 4, it simply says when he had stopped speaking. And apart from Peter or Simon Peter and later James and John, we don't know any of the reaction of those in that great crowd. You've got a picture of a great crowd. And yet what was the reaction of those people? How many of those people came again to hear the Lord? How many went away and said, I'm not really interested in what he's saying? How many said, I don't believe he's the Messiah? How many bowed the knee and said, I believe in this Jesus? We don't know. You see, it's a reminder to us that we often don't know, do we? I think about it many, many nights when I can't sleep. How many hundreds of children and young people and men and women have heard the word of God in Belvedere Road Church over the years? How many? Hundreds? Thousands? Do we know, ultimately, the impact in those who have heard the word of God? We had a wonderful example in our house group just last Wednesday. A lady called Sue came in and she was so excited. She'd had a letter that week from somebody she'd not seen for 40 years. She used to live in Ramsbottom, up in the, wherever Ramsbottom is. Some of you know where Ramsbottom is? Yes? Good. Um, she, she used to live there, and this lady wrote her a letter saying, 40 years ago, you were instrumental in bringing me to Christ. It was the first steps of coming to Christ. And Sue had no idea. And she received this letter and she was so excited to know that all those years ago, something she had said was the link in bringing this lady to Christ. You see, we never know, do we, ultimately? Or we often do not know. And here, this great crowd, and the verse just goes on and says, when he had stopped speaking. Tonight, when I stop speaking. When the children outside, when they stop speaking. What is going to happen? Well, that's our prayer that the word of God would be ingrained, would be built into our lives. And that is what we pray for. Scene one. Let's go to scene two. Scene two is the miracle which we see in verses four through to ten. A miracle. For we find that when Jesus had finished speaking, he says to Simon, launch out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. Now just think about that. Humanly, it made little sense. You see, Jesus' trade was a, 
carpenter. And here he is telling an experienced fisherman, Peter, who'd fished these waters for years and years and years. Peter, launch out into the deep, let down your nets, and you will have a catch. But of course, Peter's already been out all night. He says that, Master, he says, verse 5, we've toiled all night and we've caught precisely nothing. All night. We've caught nothing. Have you ever been given advice by someone who really doesn't know much about a topic? And you, you know a little bit more than they do and you've got to take it graciously. Right? Maybe you have, maybe you haven't. But here is Peter listening to the Lord. Peter's the fisherman. He knows that fishing is better at night. That's when you catch fish in that kind of water. And here's the Lord in the day saying, go out, put the nets out, and you're going to get a catch. Well, despite being unsure, I don't know what was going on in Peter's mind. He says, look, we've toiled all night. We've caught nothing. Nevertheless, at your word, I will let down the net. Isn't that great? At your word, Lord, I will. And faith, however limited it was, whatever Peter was thinking in terms of getting that catch, his faith overcame the doubt. The misgivings and the reticence which he had gave way to obedience. And when they let the nets down, verse 6, they caught a great number of fish, so many that their nets were breaking. And they have to get the second boat to come and help them with the great catch. Isn't this a miracle? This is truly a miracle. It's not the first miracle Peter has seen the Lord do, by the way. If you just go back to chapter 4 and verse 38 and 39, his own mother-in-law had been healed. He'd seen that. He'd witnessed it. But here in his own territory, in his own occupation of fishing, something happens to Peter. And this miracle of fish at the word of the Lord Jesus Christ, impacts Peter, as we're going to see. Remember that there are two types of miracles. If you have problems with miracles, remember there are two types of miracles. There are the miracles which appear to be against the law of nature. Turning water into wine. That water, for those who know anything about chemistry, has got... H and O in, hydrogen and oxygen. Wine, it's got something extra. It's got H and O, but it's got carbon as well. So the miracle is a miracle against the law of nature, apparently against the laws of nature. Or feeding 5,000. How did the Lord feed 5,000 with five loaves and two fishes? You can't. It's against the law of nature. And yet the master, the Lord, was able to do that. There are the miracles of timing as well. Remember the miracles of timing? The Lord stilled the storm. Well, 
storms eventually stop, don't they? We've had some pretty nasty weather from time to time during the winter. But eventually, the storm and the winds give way to calm. The Lord stilled a storm at his word. And here, this catch of fish, there was fish in the lake. Otherwise, Peter wouldn't have been using that as his job. There were fish there. But at the word of the Lord, that great catch entered the net. From the miracle, I want us to see two lessons. Lesson number one. Lesson number one is to stand amazed at the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was truly the Lord of creation. The one who knew all things, even to the depths of the lake, to where the fish were in the lake. He was the man who was God. Authoritative, omnipotent, omniscient, his word came to pass. And then we need to see a second lesson from this scene. And that is to see the reaction of Simon Peter. Peter could have shouted out, couldn't he, when he saw that great catch as though he had done it. He'd achieved. It was something that he, an experienced fisherman, this was him. But he didn't. Look at his reaction. It's go away from me, Lord. Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, not fit to be in your company. You see, he recognizes that Christ could not only see the depth of the lake. He knew that Christ could see the depth of his heart. Do you remember how in the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 6, in the year that King Uzziah died... It was a year faced with uncertainty, instability. The throne was empty in the land. Was God still in control? What are we told in the year that King Uzziah died? I saw the Lord seated upon the throne. And the reaction of Isaiah seeing the, the sovereign Lord upon the throne was to cry, woe is me. For I am a man of unclean lips. Before God, he saw himself as he really was. Like the Apostle Paul. Of course, Paul had that life-changing experience, which would mean he was never the same again. And here is Paul, as you go through the Acts and you recognize he ministers to hundreds and thousands of people. Multitudes converted. Multitudes baptized. And yet at the end of his life, what does he call himself? He doesn't say, I'm the greatest preacher. He doesn't call himself someone who was the apostle above all apostles. What does he call himself? The chief 
of sinners. And this is the reaction as we really see the Lord as he is. Then we recognize who we are before the majesty, the authority and the very presence of the living God. John Newton, well, we sing some of his hymns, don't we, from time to time? Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. John Newton preached into his 80s. He had failing health. And when his health was failing, his mind was beginning to struggle to recall things. He would often just go into the pulpit and say, my memory is nearly gone. But I can remember two things. I am a great sinner. And Christ is a great saviour. Well, that's two things worth remembering, isn't it? I am a great sinner, but Christ is a great saviour. And those of us who truly have met Jesus, who truly have met Jesus, know something of that, that we are a great sinner and we owe everything to a great saviour. And finally, scene number three. Scene number one. Well, we saw in scene number one the teaching. Scene number two, we saw the miracle. And scene number three, we see the call. In verse 10, we read... Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. Could he see in the eyes of Simon Peter that there was fear about the future? Don't be afraid, Simon. From now on, you will catch men. The from now on for Peter was to go totally different. Not catching fish, but you will catch men. And there was a promise with the sending out of Simon Peter. From now on, you will catch men. And so we're told here that Peter, along with James and John, forsook all, verse 11, and followed him. Of course, trust is one of the major issues of our day, isn't it? It comes up constantly. Who can you trust? Do we trust the Trump administration, for example, to do anything tangible about the massacre of innocent school children in the USA? Do we? Do we trust our own elected politicians and other leaders to maintain freedom of speech? And freedom to vocalise Christian beliefs in our own nation? Do we truly believe that our political leaders will allow us to do that? Do we trust our aid agencies as we've seen things on television during the past week? But if all that seems a little bit remote and a little bit political, what about trust in our own lives? Some of you have first-hand knowledge of trust betrayed, maybe by a friend or a colleague or even a fellow Christian. I trusted him. I trusted her. 
but. Who can we trust? So important. And so when somebody says, follow me, which Jesus was saying to Peter, and Jesus says to us tonight, can we trust him? Can we trust him? And yet Peter, you know, says in verse 8, he uses the word Lord. Lord. Simon Peter says, I am a sinful man, O Lord. And what does the Old Testament say in Proverbs? You can trust in the Lord with all of your heart. And don't lean to your own understanding. Trust him. We can trust the Lord. And Peter from this moment was going to be a different man. Was it going to be straightforward, plain sailing? Well, of course, it wasn't going to be completely plain sailing, was it? You only have to recognize that in a few chapters of John's Gospel, towards the end of John's Gospel, in a couple of years' time, Peter having forsaken the Lord and the Lord having known Peter's trust in him fall away. And yet the Lord in his graciousness renews Peter. Where does he renew him? In exactly the same place as he called him. In John 21, where is Peter? Out fishing. What's he doing? Catching nothing. And the Lord appears again on the beach in the same place and says to Peter, put the net down on the other side. And Peter does. Do you love me, Peter? You know I love you, Lord. But Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord. Do you really love me? And Peter is then called to that usefulness again. As he goes out into the streets of Jerusalem and preaches on that day of Pentecost, 3,000 converted. That seems like a number of men caught, isn't it? You're going to catch men. Day of Pentecost. Acts 4, 5,000 believe. That's a great catch of men. Don't be afraid. From now on, you will catch men. It's a wonderful narrative, isn't it? So as we close, just two points. Number one. Resolve. This is for all of us, for every single one of us here tonight. Number one, resolve that today will be a from now on day. From now on. Maybe for someone here, it's actually going to be a from now on day that you will become a committed follower of Jesus Christ. Yes, you come to Belvedere. You've been coming for months or even years. Culturally, you're a Christian because you've got the externals of being a Christian. Yes, you can sing the hymns. The music's good and the, the, they're nice people. But you've never become a committed follower of Jesus Christ. Maybe tonight will be the from now on I will. 
from now on? Maybe for someone the from now on will be to remember that Peter was far from perfect. He failed. And yet the Lord restored him. And to recognize that we're in the business, in the church, of knowing a forgiving and gracious God. From now on, is there someone who needs to know the forgiveness of the Lord for something? There's failure. But no failure ever need be final with Jesus. From now on. There needs to be a response from all of us. Maybe it's from now on, I'm going to resolve to read and pray more. Maybe it's from now on, I'm not going to have that separation between what I am on a Sunday and what I am on a Monday and through the week. But there needs to be a response from now on. And finally, not only resolve, but remember. Remember that for all of us, following Christ, we're in the business of catching men. That's what it says. From now on, you will catch men. That's the Great Commission. It's to go into all the world and preach the gospel. The good news of Jesus. It's the, it's the news the world needs. It's the news that Liverpool needs. Remember. Remember that the task isn't finished. It's a task that we're called to. In church, in the open air, in homes, to teach the word of God and pray that the Lord of the harvest would bring men and women into the net of the gospel of grace. What a great gospel we have. We face a task unfinished that should drive us to our knees. And that is the hymn we're going to finish with tonight. Three scenes, six lessons, take them away from now on.